John chapter 8, and we are excited to be starting a brand new series this morning. Uh, it's a three-week series, and so I do pray that you will commit this, mor- this morning today to say, I will be a part of the next three weeks, and I will make sure I'm a part of this series. And so uh, we so appreciate you joining us in person today. If you're visiting for the very first time, uh, there are some visitor cards in the seats in front of you. Thank you so much for being here. If you would feel comfortable filling one of those out and dropping that by the Welcome Center when you leave today, we'd love to give you just a little small gift, our way of saying thank you for being here, and then some more information about our ministry here, and really how we want to help you grow in Christ and know him more. And so for those watching online, thank you so much for being here as well. Uh, We are excited to begin this series, When the Devil Knocks. And uh, I want to kind of start off this morning, kind of getting our minds in the right place, if you will. Um, But man, what an amazing time of worship. Amen. And just to lift up the name of the Lord. And uh, I just have to say, uh, I am truly thankful for all of our musicians and singers and all of those who put in effort and work and prepare and practice and give their best to the Lord that we could come together and they can lead us into a time of worship through music. And so thank you so much to them. And uh, what an amazing time it was this morning. And I can't wait uh, to sing that song together as, as a congregation. And I'm excited for that. And so... But to get us started, um, I want to ask a kind of a question, and you can, you can answer out loud, that's fine. Um, but just to kind of get us thinking this way, when you were growing up, or, or maybe even now, um, you know, when you were younger, or maybe a child or a teenager, uh, when you thought of the devil, uh, what, was, what was the way you thought of him? What, what did you picture? What came to you, your mind when you thought of the devil or Satan? So I just want to hear, somebody tell me, like, just what did you think of when you were a kid and you thought of Satan or the devil? Okay, mean. What else? Okay, beast-like, right? Like a gnarling, just beast, okay? Horns, okay, absolutely. Red, pitchfork, okay? What was that? Tail, right? I don't think I've ever done that in church before. I don't know what that is, but I just did it. It's on recording. Whole world knows now, okay? Great, awesome. Um, That's exciting. So, it's almost as good as Kelsey Channel doing this when we did the football Sunday thing. That was, hers was better though. So what else? Any other things come to your mind? Horns and red and a pitchfork and a tail, beast, mean. Anything else? Cunning, right? Evil, right? Liar, yep. How, how about the little red angel and the or little devil angel and the good angel on the shoulders? Remember that? That was always depicted, Right? I really think that most of us, if we're being honest, that's most of us what we thought. We thought of images like what you just described. We think of an animated figure, a little cartoon creature, right? Kind of hunched over, right? Kind of just kind of sneaking around, looking how he can kind of manipulate and control. But if you're being honest, the the images we saw in animation or in cartoons wasn't really intimidating, Right? It wasn't like overpowering. It was just kind of more a, a mischievousness, kind of just an annoying kind of a thing. Even when you think about the idea of the angel sitting on the shoulder, the one angel, the good one in white and light and, you know, kind of illuminated, that would be the one trying to encourage us to make good decisions. The one on the other shoulder, the little red angel, or the little red demon, which depicts kind of Satan or a demonic figure, would be the one trying to lure us into a bad, but yet more fun decision, Right? Isn't that usually how it was depicted? Yeah, you could do the good thing, which is boring, or the bad thing, which is more fun. That's usually how it was depicted. And I think because of some of this, because media and different things for for decades has depicted Satan this way, I think some of us might have the, uh, the idea 
that Satan as an enemy, as an adversary, is not very intimidating, is not very forceful. There's no real reason to even think about that. And let me just say at the very onset, some of you might be thinking, why are we in church talking about Satan? Why are we in church talking about the devil? Now, I want to be very clear on this. This is not what I would call like a devil-glorifying message. We're not here to, to edify the devil or to make him or prop him up as some great figure. We're here to be real about an adversary that we face. We're here to be real about the fact that there is an enemy, a spiritual enemy, that is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. He is a thief, right? He is, he is a destroyer. He, he only brings destruction. He desires to steal and to kill and to destroy. He is a real enemy, and we need to be aware of him. But I want to say at the beginning, as it said in the intro, that we have the victory. That we've already won the war. We've already overcome. He is not greater than our God. He is not greater than our Savior. In fact, our God created him, and one day we'll put him to punishments. That God allows Satan to roar about and to tempt. And he allows that. That's, that's because God is the authority. God is over him. Satan and God are not equals co-battling in the universe. That is nowhere in the Bible that they are equals. In fact, Satan is under his authority as God. And so when we understand this, we have to understand as we talk about these things, we have the victory in Christ. We cannot forget that. But that doesn't mean the enemy will not attack us. Just because we won the war doesn't mean he will still not try to wound us and, and attack us and come after us. You see, he is a deceiver and a liar. That's the, the first week this week. We're going to be talking about the deceiver. And you've you got some notes there in your uh, uh, bulletin. I gave you a little insert there. Um, if you're a personality that has to get all the blanks filled in, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if that's you, and you miss one because your pastor talks very fast. I apologize. It's just how it is. Please see me after. I'd love to give you the notes and all those kind of things. I would ask this. Let's not raise our hand or yell out. Okay. You know, like, hey, I missed that one. Can you repeat that? Okay. Some personalities, it's hard for you not to do that. Some of you are like, there's notes. What are notes for? Because your personality, you're like, I got, it's all up here. I don't write anything down. It doesn't work, but you tell people that's how it works. So John chapter 8, we're going to look at a verse here to kind of set the stage because we have a real enemy. And this morning we're going to talk about the fact that our enemy is a deceiver. He is a deceiver. So John chapter 8 and verse 44 says this, Ye are your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, because he is a, fa he is a liar and the father of it. Let's pray and ask God to affirm these things in our hearts and minds. Father, I pray that as we begin this series, Lord, and we start talking through this idea, I pray that you'd give us wisdom, guidance, and direction. I pray that we would know that we have an adversary that is very real, that desires to destroy those that would follow after you. The desires to destroy and to wound and to, to maim your creation. Not because the devil is concerned about us. Not because Satan is worried about us. Lord, when we read your word, it's pretty clear Satan doesn't care about us. We mean nothing to him. The only reason he's concerned about us, the only reason he attacks us is because we are your crowning creation. And since he cannot strike at you, he cannot attack you head on. He comes after your crowning creation. He comes after us. 
And the more that he deceives and pulls us away into sin and corrupts and leads us astray and blinds our eyes, humanly speaking, to the things of of your word and to the things that you desire to do, the more he is pleased because it breaks your heart, because it hurts you. And that's really his goal is to hurt you, to attack you, to go after you because he ultimately wants to be on your throne. He wants to supersede your authority and, and take control. And since he can't do that, because there is none that can cause you to leave your throne, you are God, in seated, above high, all-time victor, undefeated. And since he can't unthrone you, or dethrone you, rather, Lord, he can't get you off that throne, then he's going to go after us, and he's going to try to hurt you by hurting us. And so I pray that we would know that, that when we are attacked and when he comes after us, that there is a victory. I pray that we would know that you are greater. And greater is he that is in you, that is in me, that is in those who know Christ than he that is in the world. Help us, Father, to to be aware of this enemy, to be on defense, to speak truth when he brings lies. But help us, Lord, to also know that the victory comes from you, not from us. Thank you for your grace and affirm these things we ask in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 8, verse 44 sets the stage that he is the father of all lies. He is the father of all lies. Everything he speaks is a lie. Everything he says is a a mistruth or a twisting of truth for the purpose of leading us astray. As I said, we are the crown and creation of God the Father, and because he cannot attack God the Father, he comes after us. It's not as though you are so high and mighty in your faith or that you've done so much for God that only Satan can come after you. It's that Satan desires to corrupt and kill and destroy and tear down and corrupt everything that God has made. You see, he is the father of all lies. The most famous lie that we read of that Satan told, and you could argue the most damaging, was in Genesis chapter 3 when he tricked and lied to Eve. So, first question we have to ask is, how did Satan lie to Eve? How did Satan lie to to Eve. So the first thing we notice is that he questioned God's word. You're going to see that in your notes there. He questioned God's word. Genesis chapter 3. We're just going to turn there quickly. Very familiar passage. Um, it obviously depicts what we call the fall of mankind. Um, I will say this. Genesis is, and I've said this often, but when I go to Genesis, just in case you haven't heard this, or maybe you've never been taught this, I want to be clear. Uh, Genesis is not figurative. Genesis is not allegory. Genesis is not just some way that God told Moses how to understand evolution because evolution was too hard. So God made it simpler for Moses. So Moses just wrote a simplified version in the creation accounts. Everything we read in Genesis is called a historical narrative. Narrative being a story. It's written in story form, but historical in the sense that this is historically accurate accounts. The first readers of this, the, the Israelites, would have taken it as history. Jesus reference it, references it as history. The New Testament apostles referenced it and used it as history. This is not just a story It is historically accurate. In Genesis chapter 3, this is where we find the fall of mankind, where sin enters in and the problem of sin is made permanent in our human race. This is why we need Jesus Christ. This is why he came to die on the cross for our sins, because we could not save ourselves. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath... God said, 
You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. See, God gave Adam and Eve very clear instructions. Anything in the garden you can eat, anything you can take, anything you can have, it's for you. But there's one tree, do not eat of it. And so many people, and we've said this before, so many people have said, man, God really got kind of worked up over them eating a piece of fruit. I mean, God kind of overreacted. I mean, here, they just had a piece of fruit. What's the big deal? But it wasn't just a piece of fruit. See, the moment that Eve exchanged the truth of God's word for the lie of, of the serpent, the lie of Satan, the minute she exchanged that in her heart and mind, and you're going to read on here, Satan kind of tricks her and tempts her by saying, oh, well, it's going to make you like God. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. It's going to make you like God. It's going to give you wisdom. And the minute that she believed that, which God never said would happen, by the way, God never says it's going to make you wise. God says if you eat of it, you'll die. But the minute she exchanged that truth for a lie, that was really when sin happened. That was the sin. And then eating of the fruit, that was just the result of the sin. And see, it's the same for us today, is it not? It's when we exchange the truth of God's word for the lie of the enemy, whether the enemy be Satan in this context, or even our flesh tries to lie and, and pull us astray. The minute we exchange that, long before we commit the act, we've already sinned before God. Because in our hearts and minds, we've already made the choice. You don't have to raise your hand. I could raise my hand, both hands, my feet. I could throw everything up there. You ever make a sin choice that you knew was a sin choice before you did it? You ever choose to do something, you did it, and you knew it was wrong while you were doing it? See, that's because that, that doing it is not really the sin. I mean, it's the fruit of the sin. It's sinful. It's damaging what you're doing in that act. But it's when we exchange God's truth for the lie. That's when sin takes hold in that moment. And see, that's what Satan did to Eve. He, he questioned God's word. What do we see there? Did God really say? Did God really say? Satan wanted Eve to question and doubt the accuracy of God's word. To doubt the accuracy of God's word. Once we start down the road of doubting God's word as accurate and authoritative in our lives, we will not respond to the commands of God or his authority in our lives. We will also doubt God's goodness and why he commands us to do this or to do that in our lives. God, why would you ever ask me to do this? Why can't I do that, God? I mean, it seems like there's nothing wrong with it. It's fun. I see all kinds of people doing it, and they're fine. What was the curse of when God said, if you eat of this tree, this will happen. You will surely die. Guess what? She took a bite. Did she die instantly, physically speaking? Did she fall over dead? See, this is like us too. We go, well, I took the bite, and I seem to be okay. I took the bite and no one else knows I took the bite. I took the bite and everything's fine. See, this is because what God was trying to emphasize was not so much physical death, which will come, by the way, now that's entered into humanity as well, but it's that spiritual separation from God the Father in that relationship. You see, one author said it well, and this is in your notes, I believe. When you start to question the goodness of God, it's easier to disobey the will of God. When you start to question the goodness of God, it's easier to disobey the will of God. God, are you really good? God, would you not want me to do that? God, do you have to tell me to do that? I don't really want to do that. We start to question his goodness and what the reason is behind the command. 
That's the biggest problem. We start thinking, God, it doesn't make sense to me why you asked me to do this. And maybe it's just because as Eve's going to find out, you're just wanting to keep all the wisdom and knowledge to yourself. See, this is what Satan wanted Eve to begin to question. Not only what God said, but why God said something like that. Does that make sense to you for God to be so restrictive? That's kind of what he's saying. Why would God restrict this from you? That doesn't make sense. He must just be doing it because he doesn't want you to be equal with him. And he wants you to worship him instead of being his equal and then serve with him and have all the same things that God has. I mean, why would God be so restrictive? God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? God wants you to have fun. God wants you to enjoy life. God wants you to be blessed. I've said it for a long time. The biggest lie we've told ourselves is that the key in marriage is happiness. That's the biggest lie we've bought as a culture. That the key, the main goal of a marriage is to be happy. I'm going to tell you right now, in marriage, you're not always going to be happy. That's the truth. (laughs) Seriously, let's take a second. We joke about that, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. No, guys, let's be real for a minute. Do you know the number one reason why people separate and get divorced? Because we're just not happy anymore. Well, who said that was the standard? Who said that was the goal? Do you know what the goal for a follower of Christ in marriage is? Christ-likeness in your marriage. And here, I'll be honest with you. I'm not there yet. I got a lot to learn. I'm so thankful for a gracious, loving, godly wife who's patient with me. But I'm just telling you guys, in life, we use the same thinking. Well, God always wants me to be happy. So God would never call me to do something that would make me unhappy. And God would never restrict me from being able to be happy. So therefore, this must be okay. Or if God just says I can't do something, it must be because he doesn't want me to be happy. That doesn't make sense to me. God wouldn't be so restrictive, so I'll do it anyway. We had an awesome opportunity Friday night to take part in the Voice of the Martyrs virtual event. And if you missed it, man, I'm really sorry you missed it because it was amazing. It was worth the time invested. We heard three different stories about three individuals who were in prison for Christ in different situations, different times. You know what's amazing to me? They weren't happy about it. They weren't joyful about the imprisonment. And in fact, they did a panel discussion at the end and two of the guys, two of the three, he'd asked them the question, would you go back to prison because of what God did while you were in prison? And they both said vehemently, no. They said, no. They said, I would love to have that opportunity to grow in Christ that way and to be close to him that way, but I would never want to go back to that situation to gain that. Does it sound like they were happy in prison? I told the men's prayer breakfast yesterday morning, the one individual was arrested in the airport, taken to another holding cell, like no explanation, no saying of anything was going on, was beaten for six hours straight, was sent to another cell, five weeks into being beaten every day, finally found out what his charge was. Do you think he was happy to go through that? Do you think he said, and actually he admits in his testimony, God, where are you? Another individual in prison for two years, Felt so distant from God. God, where are you? This is why we better, better stop telling ourselves that it's about being happy. It's more about being obedient, being faithful. And then when we fail in that faithfulness, God is faithful, as we sang this morning. When we believe the lie, God is faithful. And so we repent, we turn back to him, and we say, God, forgive me for that and help me to grow deeper in you. See, we need to understand that Satan's number one goal when he came to Eve was to get her to question God's word and really to question his motivation. Now, I want to be clear here, though, because when I say that, you might say, well, wait a minute. So we're not supposed to ask questions of God's word. We're not supposed to question the Bible. 
In reality, we are supposed to ask questions in our studies of God's word. We're supposed to dive in and have conversation and challenging questions that God brings to our minds and ask questions, God, why this and why that? But the difference is I'm asking these questions and I pray you're asking these questions to grow deeper in understanding of God's word, to grow in your trust and understanding of his word, not to question it, to run from it. There's a big difference there. Man, Bible study is amazing. I love when people ask questions. I'll get random texts sometimes. Hey, what do you think about this passage? And then I usually have to come back with, that's a great question. Let me look it up. I don't know. And so much people are like, well, you're the pastor. Aren't you supposed to know this? Well, I did memorize the entire Bible for graduation at Bible college, but it's been a few years, so I forgot some of it, okay? Now, I still have questions, guys. You've been reading God's word, and you're like, that doesn't fit. Like, what, what is that about? God, why would you? I mean, I just don't get it, humanly speaking. We can have questions, but we better be careful that our questions are not to avoid obedience to God's authority, but it is to grow deeper in understanding that, God, when I don't understand, I still trust you. See, he led Eve to question God's word for the purpose of running from its authority. But not only did he question God's word and lead her to do that, he also twisted God's word. He twisted God's word. So he questioned God's word. He wanted her to question God's word. And then he twists God's word to get her to doubt it. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. So he's now the authority. Oh, no, no, no. That's not true. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me, let me really tell you what's going on here. Verse 5. For God does not know, or for rather, God does know that in the day you eat of thereof, you, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. See, first he gets her to question God's word, then questions his motivation, why he even gave her that word. Then he twists God's word. Satan denied the full truth of what God declared and then attacked God's character and claiming God just doesn't want a rival. He twists the word of God. Satan is a master at twisting God's word to suit his own desires. By the way, when you read that, there's truth in there, is there not? When Eve ate of the fruit and gave to her husband, it's just like uh, being a good wife. That was really tasty. You should have some. And then when he eats it, she's like, ha ha, I got you too. No, I don't know. That's probably not really what happened. But, and I always picture Adam just like, okay, like this, I'll eat the fruit, you know, like idiot. Okay. Way to a man's heart is through his. That's right. Amen. So when this happens though, and this whole thing starts to unfold, it's amazing how Satan twists it and, and moves it just slightly where it's sort of true that were their eyes opened? Did they, did they become like God's knowing good and evil? Yeah. But did Satan miss some things in there? Did he omit some things in there? Exactly. And that's it. He doesn't just lie, outright lie. He twists. I've heard it said before, and I think it was Pastor Keith and I years ago, we were talking about this. The most dangerous lie is not the extreme lie. It's not the one that's way out over here. It's that subtle difference. It's that subtle lie. It's that small little, just moving the needle just a half degree. Because when you carry that out over time, what happens? It gets greater and greater and greater and greater. And now we're way out here. And that's what Satan's doing. He's just moving the needle one degree. No, no, listen. The truth is, you're not going to die. And in fact, your life will be better. Not only will you not die, you'll be like God's. Man, if that's not how he tempts us today with money, careers, possessions, greed, and pride, I don't know how he tempts us. 
We see this also in the New Testament as well in Matthew chapter 4. And I think this is in your notes. Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. We're not going to read the whole thing. But I want to give you just kind of a snapshot of the temptation or what we call the temptations of Christ. This is where Jesus has been baptized. He goes out into the wilderness for the sole purpose of being tested and tempted. He's fasting. And Satan comes to him and begins to tempt him. We read the account where Jesus is tempted three different times with different types of temptations. And I want to emphasize how this unfolds. Jesus was the first to use scripture in this back and forth with Satan. So Satan comes and tempts him. And the first temptation is what? Making bread out of stones, basically. Satan doesn't quote scripture. Satan doesn't even bring up scripture. If you're going to argue with God about something, I'll give you a recommendation. Don't use scripture. Because you're using it wrong and he'll know it better, right? So Satan comes and says, hey, you're really hungry. Make these stones into bread. Again, food involved. I don't know what's going on here. Some kind of a theme with food and sin, I guess. I don't know. But as this happens, Jesus quotes scripture back to Satan. He actually quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then Satan, after that moment, begins to start his next temptation with the same phrase that Jesus used to quote scripture. Jesus said, it is written. So the next temptation, Satan says, it is written. See, Satan doesn't quit just because we throw the Bible at him. Satan doesn't quit because we quote scripture. Sometimes Satan, through situations, circumstances, other people will give us scripture back. Oh, no, I know it does say that. But listen, it also says this. It also says this. Satan, in his next temptation, gives a quote of Psalm 91, 11 through 12. He does this in Matthew 4, 6. And when you look at what he says in Matthew 4, 6 and what's recorded in Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12, it's practically an exact quote. It's almost an exact quote of Psalms when he quotes it to Jesus. So what's the problem? He quotes scripture and he's taking it. Hey, this is what it says. I didn't change it. I didn't take a word out. I didn't misuse it. I'm just here. This is what it says. Jesus, what do you say to that? It is written in Psalm 91. It's an encouragement to the godly that God will give them security no matter what they go through in their challenges. As they live for God, God will watch over them and keep them safe. Satan is using it as a means of tempting God, which Jesus rebukes with Deuteronomy 6. 16, Jesus says again, it is written again. It's as though Satan gives him scripture and Jesus goes, no, no, no. It is also written. Hey, by the way, I know you're thinking you know scripture. Let me tell you what the Bible actually says. While you're taking this verse, you're, you're quoting it right in the sense of you're using all the words, but you're twisting it. The motivation behind why you're using this scripture is wrong. Satan twisted, twisted scripture not by misquoting it, but by misapplying it for selfish reasons. And if we can be honest this morning, we and others do the same thing. When we read verses like Philippians 4.19, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We love that verse. And we love verses like that. Man, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We quote it accurately, but pray for it to be true based in selfish desires. We quote it, it's what it says, but our reason is, God, I want to be financially wealthy. God, I believe that you'll just keep blessing me so that I might have much gain. Do you know Philippians chapter 4, you know why Paul writes that to the church at Philippi? 
if you read the passage in the chapter, they were giving from their lack to his missions efforts. And they were giving so much to provide for him that Paul says, as you've given to missions and as you're providing for the work of missions, God, because he has the authority and the ability to do so, he will cover all your needs. Why do they have needs? Because they've given out of their abundance and their lack, even at times, to provide for the missions, which creates a need. And he says, by the way, don't worry about that. As you've given to God's work, God will provide for you. See, we love the verse. We love quoting that verse, but I don't think we would love it as much if we realized, wait a minute, but that means I have to give to a point of having need. I have to give to something like missions to such a degree that I would have such a need that God would step in and provide. Now, it's not just missions. It's not just that context. As we give unto God as, a, as an act of worship, he steps in and provides our needs, sometimes financial, sometimes through groceries, sometimes through relationships, however it is. The point is, though, we can't just quote that verse and go, okay, God, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. But that's exactly what Satan was trying to do. It's also interesting to note that all of Jesus' quotes, when he quoted Scripture back to Satan, came from the book of Deuteronomy. Again, affirming the truth and the authority of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. So, how does Satan lie to Eve? Well, two keys. He questioned God's word, and he twisted God's word. Again, he does this in our lives today. He comes to us with these temptations and these lies, and he, he, he lies directly to us. He tells us what we want to hear. He twists God's word. He questions God's word. So how do we stand against his lies? How do we stand against these lies that he brings into our lives? And by the way, again, he is a real enemy. Well, the first thing we need to understand is we stand against the lies by the word of God. By the word of God. We already highlighted that when Satan tries to deceive us away from full trust in the grace and goodness of God, we speak the truth of the word of God in defense. If Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, the best defense he could give was quoting Scripture, why do we think any different would help with us? We give Scripture because that is the power of God. That is the, the authority that God speaks. The Word of God is a powerful weapon that we have been given to know the truth and stand victorious against the lies of the enemy. But let me just pause for a second here. If the Word of, the, of God is our greatest weapon against Satan, when he comes against us with his lies, what does that imply that we as believers must know? That means we must give ourselves to the word of God to know the word of God. I'm not talking about memorizing the whole thing by heart. I mean, that's awesome if you can put your mind to that. I do believe there's aspects of memorizing God's word that God's word encourages. That I might hide God's word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against him. And I know what you're going to think. Oh, but preacher, I just can't memorize God's word anymore. I just, you know, I'm too old. I just can't do that. I'm going to tell you right now, stop limiting God because of your limitations. Man, just give yourself to God's word. And when you read a verse that God speaks to you on, just commit it to memory and say, God, help me to remember this. Help me to remember at least the point of this, the principle of this, the heart of this verse. I may not get all the words right. I may not get the reference exactly right. But give this truth to me in my heart that I might be able to draw this out. And here's the cool thing. When we start to work that way, the Holy Spirit will actually be the one that draws it to our remembrance. Isn't that what he told the disciples? We talked about this Friday night as well in the video. When you get drawn before the religious leaders, you get drawn before the authorities, don't give a thought to what you're going to say because I'll give you the words to say. One of the individuals, after being in prison for all those weeks, was drawn before this kangaroo court, as they called it. And they said, do you have anything to say? And his charges that you're a spy and all these things. He was in Iranian prison. And he stood and he said, the courtroom was full. There was cameras. There was all these people. He said, don't ask me why I did it. It wasn't me. It was Jesus. I just started preaching the gospel. Now think about Stephen and Acts. 
when he's getting ready to be stoned to death, his greatest defense is he just gives him Jesus. And he begins to recount all the history of the Jews. And then he goes into the story of Jesus and he tells all this. And then they got so angry because they were, I believe, convicted. And they rushed on him and they killed him. See, when we are attacked by Satan, and whether that comes through another person or not, we know that that person is not really our enemy, by the way. We don't battle against flesh and blood. Some people are doing things against the church or against those that are followers of Christ and believing it's the right thing, but really they're just being used by Satan for his motivations and his desires. But those individuals are not our enemy, and we got to remember that. I think if there's one message we need to know clearly in our day and age and our culture today is the enemy is not other people. I don't care what political party they align to. I don't care what religious group they claim to be a part of. I don't care if they're atheist, agnostic, or anything in between. That is not your enemy. That is someone that Jesus Christ gave his life for. And we don't see them as an enemy. We should have pity for them. I'm not saying that the things they do are right and we shouldn't hold people accountable. I'm just saying we need to see them in the right spiritual lens so that we will pray for them effectively and be willing to give the word of God when the opportunity arises. So how do we stand against the lies of Satan? We do what Jesus did. We give the word of God. Two references that I think I put in your notes there. Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts. The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Then Ephesians 6 and Hebrews 4, we see just a small sample of the power of the word of God and the power it can be in defending against the lies of Satan. Ephesians 6, many of you remember this from VBS, probably when you were kids, right? The armor of God is a real popular topic a lot of times in VBS because you could do a different piece of armor every night. The curriculum's easy. It's written in five minutes. You're ready to go, okay? I say that as somebody that's had to put together VBS before and we went right to the armor of God because it made sense. When you see the armor of God, what's the point of the armor of God? To defend, to be protected. What's the point of the shield of faith? To protect against the fiery darts of the wicked. That's Satan, his principalities, his powers, the rulers of darkness. See, when we talk about the armor of God and the word of God being the sword of the spirit, it's to defend against the enemy who is Satan. In Ephesians 6, we get the impression that the word, word there when it says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This means a specific verse or specific passage in a specific situation. So it's like saying the right tool for the job. So when Satan tempted Jesus to jump down or to throw himself off the pillar of the temple and to to throw himself down, and Psalm 91 says that, that he'll send his angels to protect you and save you, he says, don't tempt the Lord your God. See, that was the specific right verse for that specific right temptation. He spoke that one to that temptation. That was the best tool to defend against that temptation. And that's what Ephesians 6 is saying, that the word of God, those specific verses will be the best defense against that specific temptation. And so you might ask, well, how do I know that? How do I know what the best verse is? That's the wonder of the Holy Spirit working in us when we are going through something and the Spirit will bring a verse to our mind and we'll just know that's the best way to defend that. Hebrews, the word word is logos, or the same as John 1.1. 1, 1. 
This is referring to, at times, the person of Christ, but also the revealed truth he has given us from the mind of God. So when you take these two verses, just two simple examples, there's more, but just two examples, you'll see that we have the very specific words we need because God, through Jesus Christ, has given us the very mind of God, and now we'll be able to understand how to apply God's word against every lie of the enemy. So how do we defend against these lies? Well, by the word of God, but also by praying for wisdom. Go to James chapter 1. We reference this verse often because, in my opinion, it's amazing and it's so simple and easy and simple to apply, but yet also at the same time difficult to apply. James chapter 1 and verse 5. How do we stand against the lies and the attack of Satan? By the word of God, but also by praying for wisdom. James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom... I could raise my hand to that. Let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Now, when you read this whole chapter, you're going to find that James is highlighting the temptation that comes into our lives. The temptation to sin and what the result of sin is, which is not good. He talks about the flesh that's within us that desires to sin. But also he talks about the idea of being tempted and there's this bait that is put out there. That we're drawn away by this bait. So the flesh in us wants the bait. The flesh in us wants that, I'm going to use the fishing analogy, that juicy worm. Okay? Right before lunch, we're going to talk about worms. It's just really good, good idea. Okay, so. Yeah, you guys ever eat gummy worms and just kind of be grossed out by that? But anyway, so. Sorry, it just came to my mind. I was like, I remember eating gummy worms as a kid thinking, this is kind of gross. Like, this is kind of nasty. Anyway. When you think about James chapter 1, it talks about, that's just how my mind works, sorry, just whoop, gone, okay. In James chapter 1, it talks about the idea of that bait, that, that there's something in us that wants it. That's the sin nature in us. But we have to ask the question of who's baiting the hook? Who's the one dangling in front of us? You might say, oh, it's the world. Like, yeah, it is. It's, it's the things in our world. It's the lust of the world. It's all those things. It's other people. Well, but we just already established that other people aren't really the enemy, See, it's, it's the enemy. It's Satan that's baiting that hook. And here's the thing. When you think, oh, no, that one doesn't bother me anymore. I've got victory over that, that bait. Nope, that bait isn't appealing anymore. I'm good. You know what Satan does? He doesn't put the fishing pole away. He just changes the bait. Oh, okay, so finances don't do it for you anymore, okay? Here, let's take that one off. Let's throw lust on the hook and see how far you go. How about vanity? Not really caught up in pride or greed, but, man, vanity, you really like when people say you look good. You really live for their praise. And man, that really boosts you up. And you're starting to get kind of arrogant and cocky. Let me throw vanity on there. Oh, that one's not working anymore? Let me change that out. Let me put a different one on there. And see, we just, he just keeps changing the bait and changing the bait. And that's why it's so frustrating to be a believer in the world today. It's so tiring at times to be a believer. Because sometimes, to be honest, the thing I'm looking, to heaven, or looking forward to heaven the most about is being free from temptation. I ain't got to worry about it no more. Because, man, don't it just get tiring? Like, you're just like, come on. Like, I, I was over this one. I'm over this one. God, give me And then this pops up. And it's just like, we just get tired of it. But we cannot waver. And how do we know how to re- reject the bait that's on the hook? Well, James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom. Now, in, in context, he's speaking specifically about trials we go through. There's two-ton trials. There's the God trials that refine our faith, and there's the trials of temptation to lead us to sin. God never tempts us to sin. The Bible says it in the same chapter. 
But I believe the wisdom that he's offering to us applies in both areas. God, give me wisdom that when I'm going through this trial that's refining my faith, I'll trust you as good and I'll honor you. God, as the enemy is coming against me and I'm feeling a temptation to sin, that I'll have wisdom to reject that and trust in you. I think the wisdom is needed in both areas. When the enemy comes to tempt us with deceit, we must pray for wisdom from above in how to respond. Since our enemy is spiritual, we need spiritual wisdom. This is available to all of those who know Christ. However, the application of this wisdom is much more difficult. I am personally so thankful that when James says he gives to all liberally or bountifully as well as abradeth not. That phrase abradeth not, different translations may say different things, but the idea here is that means he does it without finding fault. He does it without finding fault. What does that mean? How do we apply that? Well, listen, when you go to him and ask for wisdom, when you should have asked for wisdom before you gave in, you should have asked for wisdom before you did it, you should have asked for wisdom as you're being tempted. You know what he does? He says, okay, I'm going to give you this wisdom, and I'm not going to remind you that you just fell. I'm not going to find fault in you because that's under the blood. I'm going to give you wisdom, and I'm going to abradeth not. Another way to say this is he does it without chiding or taunting us. He doesn't go, man, you should ask for that wisdom before. Don't you wish you would have asked for it before? You've been better off. What were you thinking? He doesn't taunt us or chide us. The Bible says he does it freely and liberally to those that are his. The truth is this is so freeing. James is telling us when we seek his wisdom, finally, after not seeking his wisdom and maybe falling for some of the lies of the enemy, he doesn't taunt us or find fault. He just grants us his wisdom to move on in Christ. One commentary said it well. There can be no true perfection or maturity without wisdom, which is the gift of God and must be sought from him. As we grow in Christ, maturing and understanding his grace, truly his great grace, but also the enemy we face, we need his wisdom. And so I want to close with two questions in your handout there. What are some ways, this is totally for you to think about personally, what are some ways the enemy tries to lie to you and your family? What biblical truths can you use to combat the enemy's lies? You see, the truth is we face an enemy who is a deceiver, who is trying to trick us and trap us in sin by misleading us in thinking our desires can be met in the temptations he is laying before us. He thinks, or we think, we fall for those lies because we think the desire we have will only be met when we give in. But the truth is, the desire you have cannot be met in that temptation. It is already met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. David Platt said it well, the trigger of sin involves looking into the things of this world to satisfy us apart from our creator. Why did Eve really give in? Because she looked to the world. She looked to the things. She looked to something outside of her creator to satisfy her desires. I I try to be as transparent as I can be as your pastor. I'm going to be honest with you. I've believed the lies that he's laid before me in my life. I've, I've believed the lies. I've bought the lies. I've taken of the bait. And I'm going to tell you right now, the result was always the same. It was never rewarding. It was never satisfying. It was always a time of shame and guilt, conviction. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, if you give in and you believe the lie, the result will be the same for you. Maybe you're here this morning and you'd say, no, preacher, I've done that. I, I, I believe the lie. I've gone too far. That is a lie from the enemy. There's no such thing as too far. You repent. You turn back to him. You trust in his grace. He will redeem you. He will draw you back to him. He will restore you. And he will revive you. If you don't know Christ, the best decision you can make and the one the enemy does not want you to decide to make is to trust Christ as your savior. But if you know Christ and you've believed a lie, you can repent and say, God, I'm so sorry for that. I believe that. I exchanged the truth for a lie. I pray you'd forgive me for that. I pray you'd strengthen me to know your word, to stand against that deceiver. I'm gonna ask that we bow our heads right there where you are. that you'd begin to pray right there where you are, however God is speaking to you. Father, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for the ability to apply these truths, Lord. We know we have an enemy that is real. He is a deceiver. He is the father of all lies. But I'm so thankful that in your word, we find the truth. And so help us, Lord, to combat the lies of the enemy. But Lord, if we're being honest, we've all at times believed in our lives. The lies of insecurity, the lies of you're not good enough, the lies of he can't love you anymore. The lies that his grace cannot forgive anymore. The lies that you've just gone too far. Lord, I pray that we would reject all of it. And know that it's just an attempt to keep us from believing and knowing that you truly do love us as much as you say you do. That your grace is truly able to overcome any and all sin. Because where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Help us to know this for ourselves. That we might use the word of God and your wisdom to combat the lies of the enemy so that you would be glorified. Lord, for the one here this morning or maybe more that has believed a lie, that is carrying that guilt and that shame, maybe they've already confessed it. Maybe they've laid it before you and they know that they are forgiven in Christ, but they're still having a hard time moving on. Father, I pray that they would know that they are a new creature in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. That we can stand victorious on your word and know that we are yours and you are ours and we will never leave you. Or rather, Lord, that you will never leave us and you will keep us even when we drift from you. Father, thank you for this. May you lead, guide, and direct in all these things, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we... Spend a time in response to God this morning. I pray that you would just respond to whatever he's doing with it there in your seats. We're here at the altar. Would you come and pray? Seek him. Know that he can give you the truth and that the battle is already won. You don't have to believe the lies of our enemy any longer.